This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the War School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He is the author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is now available wherever books are sold. So go out and get a copy. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. It's been a tumultuous year all year long. It's been a year driven by inflation. Um, we're going to have a guest who has done a lot of work on quantitative strategies, looking at what to position portfolios for inflation. Uh, we're going to turn to him in just a bit. Uh, but Professor, uh, let's get your year-end summary as we go into the holiday season here. We got Snowmageddon coming. We got um, trying to fly out today. We'll see how that goes. But uh, give us your year-end outlook, Professor. Yeah, well, I, do we have Friday, Jeremy, uh, next week? Um, I think or... we, may, we might have a holiday week off next week. Oh, because of the break. Okay, so this would be uh, year-end. Okay, um, let, let's sort of summarize where we're going to go. Um, uh, the, the real data is holding in. It's not gangbusters. Uh, but it's not collapsing anyways. Uh, the inflation data that I see is still coming in very favorable. Uh, today, actually, the one-year uh, University of Michigan uh, inflation index dropped to 4.4%. Now, that is the lowest in a year and a half. Um, uh, w- w- we saw also the PCE deflator come in at one-tenth of a percent, um, uh, actually overall, at zero, um, you know, I'm maintaining my position that inflation is over and proper housing data um, that if it was in the Fed's indexes would show that it is over. Speaking of housing data, next week we do get uh, the last Tuesday of every month. Um, actually, a couple things happen. We will get uh, the shore data again for the month of November. I, uh, expectations are another uh, pretty steep decline in in house prices. Um, also, we get the uh, Federal Housing Agency data, which also is expecting a, a decrease. We also get the money supply um, on the fourth Tuesday of the month. I expect it uh, on preliminary data to be either slightly down or flat, continuing the sharp uh, I'm not even call it deceleration because it was going up at double digit rates until March of this year, and then actually has sunk since then. Uh, uh, certainly indicating a very very strict fit. Um, so what what can we look forward to? The market wants to pivot. They want the Fed to recognize how much inflation has in fact come down. They're scared of of being tight too long and then driving us into a recession, which then if the Fed starts easing, it's going to be too late uh, to do so. Um, That is the the fear of the Fed, uh, of the markets, of the equity markets. Uh, That's what's keeping them down. Uh, I think that we're not going to, you know, see a diminution in earnings as much, even if we do have a mild recession. Um, uh, we might be surprised by productivity gains this year uh, uh, in 2023 that will uh, uh, improve profit margins and offset any deflationary forces of the Fed uh, uh, throughout this year. I expect, let me, let me say, what, what, let me give you a year-end projection. I expect equities to be up 15% next year, 15 to 20. I think it'll surprise people. Everyone says it's going to be in the second half. I think it could be uh, even in the, the first half. I expect interest rates to be down. I expect Fed funds rate to be between 2 and 3% by the end of the year, um, and the 10-year to be 50 to 100 basis points lower than it is today, which would be put it into the low, low twos. That's that's where I expect it to be. Of course, any one of your projection has a large standard error. Um, 
Um, but I think that, uh, you know, the basic signs of the economy are strong. I'm just waiting for the Fed to realize that, start the money supply growing again at 5% um, per year. Certainly the, the Fed is one of the key risks for not following your advice. Um, it'll be very interesting to see when they when they sort of take your pivot suggestion. 2 to 3% by the end of the year is a very outlier call for what people are thinking. Yeah. I, I do. I, I absolutely. I'm really on. on. I, I also want to mention something else. I have, I have my notes. Um, many people may have heard a long interview that CNBC had with David uh, Tepper, and he's certainly a legendary hedge fund manager, um, where he said, I am slightly bearish. He said, I believe the central banks and, you know, they you, you know, don't fight the Fed. Of course, I don't believe the central banks because the central banks have not done anything uh, th- that they said they were going to do, nor have they predicted correctly. Um, but nonetheless, I want to emphasize another thing he mentioned and that everyone mentions. It seems like more and more people are granting the housing distortion in there, but they hang their hat on wages. And I uh, and he brought up the fact that there's been a structural shift that has lowered the supply of labor. Um economists should realize that if there is a structural shift that lowers the supply, that should increase real wages. And there's nothing the Fed can do about that um, to suppress that. They would have to suppress the price of goods into negative territory to prevent a rise in real wages. That's why I think that is such a misguided um, goal of the Fed. We've got to crush wages failing to realize that's what's needed to get the people in the positions to improve the productivity of, of so many um, establishments. I mean, I, I was just reading uh, about in England, uh, there was a big uh, article, I think it was in the New York Times, that uh, thousands of restaurants may have to close because they don't have workers. And then uh, they have a problem about Brexit and, and uh, importing immigrants to work in the restaurants uh, there. But all, all over you cannot improve your economy by forcing wages down. Um, you have to pay people their marginal product. They have to pay people their real wages. Um, and um, I, I believe that that, again, as I've mentioned to you in past shows, is a misguided goal of the Federal Reserve. And I hope that they do realize that in 2023. Uh, I, I saw the Tepper interview I was watching, and one of the things he said, uh, and actually it's been coming up on client calls this week as well, there's a big question. You know, He pointed out the valuations back in the bottom in 2012, we were like 12 times earnings. He's saying maybe next year we don't have much earnings growth. This is 16 times earnings. You've talked a lot about like what is the, the fair PE. Maybe sort of talk through factors. You've talked about 20 as a sort of more yeah. equilibrium PE. Yeah. Maybe talk through the factors you think that support that and, and why, even in the recession, the, the P's is not the right one to look at there. Well, and, and then, first of all, obviously, when it was 12 PE, I mean, the market was unbelievably undervalued at the end of the financial crisis. I mean, it, and, 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 and it was at, and in fact, it, it, what, what, what followed was a, one of the almost the longest bull market and, and, and the longest economic expansion in history put an end to only by the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, not anything internal. So, you know, the, the situation in 2012 was like a field day um, as far as that's concerned. Um, 16 is a 150-year average. If you put a, a, a least squares trend line through there, you actually get an upward tilt uh, to an average of 20 today, not 16 uh, as being the PE, uh, and that's on normalized earnings, not on recession-level earnings. Um, and there are good economic reasons uh, that I've mentioned before um, um, uh, in terms of efficiency of markets, low uh, cost of diversification, better risk-return spreads that justify a higher PE. But let me mention one thing in particular. Everyone were concerned about the interest rate. Even the 10-year rate today at 1.4%, which I, I think is going to go way down next year, um, is still extremely low by historical standards. So, and, 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 and what Tepper doesn't say is, 
the Fed itself admits it's near the end of, of I mean, they may, they may go to five, may go to five and a quarter, you know. Um, so how much more are we going to see on the 10 year uh, in terms of the real rate? A one and a half, 1.7. If you go back in history, average real rates were much higher and much more competitive to stocks. So if you measure bonds compared to stocks, and please don't give me the 4% nominal when in stocks have averaged 65 to 7% real as being a strong competitor uh, to stocks. Um, you know, my feeling is that stocks still are undervalued, uh, even at these heightened real rates relative um, to uh, their equilibrium. Well, Professor, you know, I got to give you a lot of credit this year for calling everything spot on. Uh, you called, uh, you were pessimistic coming into the year because you thought the Fed was going to be too tight. Now, uh, pivoting course and an optimistic when you have a lot of bears and a, a sort of very out, outside consensus view on the Fed. So thanks for all your great work this year and uh, have a happy holidays. Look forward to the new year. We'll get all the data and, and report back yeah, in January. Yeah, the first week in January, I think the, the labor market report will be on that Friday and we'll have a lot of great data uh, to discuss. And Thanks, Happy Professor. New Year to you and every, all our listeners. <laughs> it's been a great year. Thank you. So we are going to turn the conversation to Steve Howe, who is a quantitative researcher. He is, uh, we wouldn't do this in person at Wharton, uh, but unfortunately the weather uh, caused us to now just do it via remote setup here. But Steve, good to see you from the Bloomberg offices in Washington, D.C. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeremy, for having me. So tell our listeners uh, you, you, a little bit about your background, what you do at Bloomberg. Uh, we're going to talk about inflation, which has been the key thesis. You heard a little bit about the professor's thesis. So I'm going to ask you to respond to some of what you heard there. But tell, tell people a little bit about what you do at Bloomberg uh, and, and your role there. Yeah, so uh, uh, thanks for, again for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm a quant, as you said, I'm a quant researcher at Bloomberg Indices, and uh, I work on systematic uh equity strategies, factors, as well as uh, in some multi-asset uh, context, looking at, look at stuff in macro thematics. Um, so uh, I've been with Bloomberg since uh, 2020, two years, uh, and prior to that, I was with ATR Capital uh, uh, between 2018, uh, since, uh, and I got my PhD in 2018 from University of Michigan in financial economics. So a lot of quant research with Cliff over to Bloomberg. Um, we're going to talk through, you, you did a presentation recently on inflation, which was what caught my eye. Uh, and, and so thanks for sort of sharing that on Twitter. He's got a, a great handle, Steve, H-O-U-F, uh, for Steve Howe. Uh, uh, Steve, maybe just tell, well, let, let's see, responding to the professor's comments that inflation is over. How do you respond mm -hmm. to that? He had a big outlier view on the Fed. Maybe just respond to his opening comments. Uh, yeah, so I first of all, I did uh, have a presentation uh, end of uh, October, early uh, November, as part of our Bloomberg's Portfolio Index Research Conference on in, uh, inflation, where I looked at uh, did a survey of different types of uh, systematic strategies and how they performed across inflationary regimes, and you examine in particular what happens if you were to actually enter another inflationary uh, regime, uh, you know. And uh, I don't have a particular strong, you know, forecast as to whether or not predicting regime shifts is always hard. But I think Professor he probably lies more towards the more optimistic end of uh, expectations. Uh, I, I think generally, if you look in history, inflation tends to be a pretty pernicious thing that uh, it doesn't really uh, go away quite so easily. And there seems to be some sort of a consensus. Uh, if people are talking as though that we just get this one hump, one shot, right? You know, inflation goes up, inflation comes back down, and, and that's it. Uh, but uh, if you look at history, uh, typically sort of, you know, things like that, inflation can reverberate. And uh, especially if you look in the 70s and, you know, think, uh, in fact, inflation peaked three times uh, with four interlacing recessions. Uh, and those made it particularly, uh, I think, difficult to deal with. And not saying that we're necessarily going to repeat that, but... Um, uh, it, it seems like, given the global nature, widespread nature, uh, that uh, you know, it, it is plausible that inflation could actually, you know, stick stick around. So let, let's talk about some of that. The, the, the first slide of your your presentation back then was was talking about transitory versus structural. Clearly, the big mistake uh, in our view, the Fed made, was calling it transitory too long. Um, what's what's the case now? Um, what are some of the structural drivers of inflation in your view that might keep it longer? 
higher for longer. Right. Um, so the way I, I thought of transitory, the opposite of transitory really is the word structural, right? It's not really about the duration, the length, as much as whether or not, if you think about the global economy as some sort of a machine that's driven by some sort of like, you know, rules of, of motion, laws of motion, whether or not uh, those things have potentially changed over the last decade of low interest rates. Um, and uh, and, I, and you can actually argue that sort of there's the longer arc people talk about we always think about the longer secular deflationary forces automation globalization you know aging demographics therefore smaller consumption but uh, if you look at the last 10 years some of those fact there are actually some interesting structural factors that could actually keep inflation elevated you know one of them we're looking at now is obviously is the tightness of labor markets across the west right uh, it's not just the US, we're short a few million workers out of the pandemic, but you also look at the UK and Australia uh, and elsewhere. Um, and there seems to be basically, you know, a aging of working age population, you know, not just, you know, uh, um, or in the East, you know, we've been dependent, right, for uh, many years, right, this endless uh, supply of, uh, you know, cheap labor, you know, out of East Asia, especially China, and China we know is working with population, you know, peaked social uh, for overall population in 2014-15, and uh, it's been on a very, very fast, you know, uh, trajectory towards, you know, aging population. Uh, so you might run out of, on one hand, you know, supply of, uh, you know, readily available, you know, cheap labor on the one hand, and on the other hand, you've got people retiring on the West uh, who may not cut back their consumption so drastically right away, right? So you are talking about the next five to seven years, things could actually be, you know, a bit volatile, inflation could actually sort of jump up and down, right? Well, you mentioned China as one of the aging populations and, and the deglobalization from China being one of the factors. Uh, China, you, you've been tweeting a lot about the recent shift in China. And this is, I think, one of the big questions for next year is uh, that could that could counteract the professor's thesis earlier was what is China's role on the inflationary impulse going to be next year going away? Just sort of talk through the shift that that's happening in China right now. Uh, and and sort of positive implications for inflation, negative implications for inflation. What's your what's your view? Yeah, it's really quite fascinating. So you know, I, I'm not a fundamental macro you know analyst person, but I am Chinese, and I've been you know watching China quite uh, you know uh, intently in the last last few months. And uh, clearly, China has had a very sharp pivot right on its zero COVID policy right after Party Congress. You know, we saw a lot of you know people who are quite displeased with the pace of, of reopening after the public congress there was some protests and government quickly pivoted you know much faster than perhaps anyone was watching uh and uh you know that obviously was already being baked into some expectations a lot of people who are in the energy space have been waiting for china to reopen quote unquote right open up travel you know and so on and and real you know re, uh, uh, um, sort of elevate you know economic activities but I think there's another factor that's underneath it that's also, you know, very interesting is that China actually, you know, was, you know, obviously in severe, under severe economic pressure uh, because of zero COVID. Uh, that's putting enormous stress on an economy that was already very uh, structurally, you know, uh, weak, right, coming into zero, uh, the pandemic. And was on top of that, you know, China has been, you know, implementing all these different policies on clamping down, for example, consumer technology, you know, platform economy like Tencent, Alibaba, and so on. On the one hand, on the other hand, it has been clamping down on the real estate sector because he saw that as a bubble and making cost of living and affordability difficult. And finally, also actually, you know, with a very high profile, uh, you know, decided to kill off the private tutoring sector because you saw it as one of the ways that you made child, you know, raising expensive. But I think as of last few weeks, uh, in fact, this month, uh, a few weeks ago, China just came out with a new, you know, strategic plan where they made a 180 pivot, right, where they reversed policy on all three fronts, pretty much. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're going to actually act aggressively support the real estate sector. They're going to actually invest in infrastructure to, to support the economy. Uh, um, uh, and they're going to actually support and encourage private education, you know, on all, on all these fronts. So there is actually 
kind of interesting if you watch government language that there's some expectation built, being built, built up that we're, we're going to see some pretty strong stimulus coming out of China for uh, uh, for Chinese economy rebound next year, right? So, and, and, and the implication for inflation there, of course, is the first order impact is you expect, you know, demand pressure for commodities and, you know, perhaps for energy and, and uh, you know, base, you know, like metals and uh, EV, for example, is one of the sectors being supported that could mean, you know, higher demand for lithium and all the metals involved. But the timing here is is, is going to be interesting depending on when it happens relative to the rest of the world's economy, you know, the, the impact, net impact on inflation can be different. We're talking with Steve Howe, who's a quantitative researcher uh, at Bloomberg Indexes about his views on inflation, how the structure of Steve, so if, if I force you to do a betting man on this inflationary impulse, there's supply chain pressures, which uh, once they get through the COVID and it gets and, and people are talking about how rapid it's spreading uh, in the short run and, and, and maybe by early spring, it's, it's gone through a huge part of the population. There's obviously disruption over the next three months while that happens. Um, but you know, you could say they're easing pressures on the supply chains, and then there's the opening into more travel, which is sort of inflation positive, where the supply chains inflation negative. On balance, if I put a gun, you know, gun to you right now, what is it? Is it net positive or net uh, net neutral, net negative? What what which one's going to win out? Uh, so uh, as I was saying before, right, you know. All else equal, I expect this to be, you know, inflationary. China's reopening yeah. and aggressively pumping, you know, if stimulus into the economy, if that actually came through. Uh, and uh, in China's current PPI and CPI are both very low, right? PPI is like minus 1.6% year on year, and uh, CPI is 1.6% year on year, like tra- and tra- trending downward in the last few months. So they and they've got fiscal space at the central government level, so they can certainly do it, right? Uh, and uh, the, the net impact on global uh, inflation, I think, just depends a bit on how the rest of the world is doing uh, with this young economy. You know, are we talking about the timing wise? If let's say China rebounds, you know, sharply in Q1 next year, and the U.S. economy is still, you know, humming along and uh, you know not going to a recession, it's quite seems quite resilient. You know, that could actually mean that we can actually see a short-term boost and and a, you know a re-inflation potentially, you know, resurgence on the commodity side. But uh, if infl- China was to rebound, you know, later in Q2, Q3, uh, uh, you know, because of the COVID, you know, being much tougher than expected, then the global economy could actually be already tipping into a, a deeper recession, which in which case I think yeah, I would expect the overall demand to be weak globally and uh, the net impact on inflation will still be dominated by a global recession. Now, we, we talked about, or you mentioned, one of the big drivers of maybe structural inflation could be this U.S.-China decoupling. Where is that, in your view, today um, with some of these changes? You mentioned a lot of pivoted changes just very quickly overnight. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how global tensions pivot quickly, but what, who, are, who, who do you see as beneficiaries of the, the structural decoupling? Uh, yeah, so... The, the structural decoupling between the U.S. and China, you know, in terms of supply chain, I think that is a longer-term event than whatever we are lo- looking at over the last few weeks on China's own pivoting. Obviously, China's, you know, zero-COVID policy, you know, has I think made it more urgent for large U.S. companies like Apple that saw its own factory in, with Foxconn in, 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 in rising protest. So I think. Uh, you know that, that we are going to see a structural trend, you know, of general a gradual decoupling between U.S. Com- companies and Chinese OEM manufacturers. Now the question is uh, the pace and uh, how easy, smooth this process is. Right? There seems to be this general casual assumption that India plus Vietnam, right, quote unquote, like Southeast Asia, can equal China. But I think in reality. The efficiency, you know, and the, the time uh, um, you know, to deliver, deliver and all that stuff to, to perk, you know, to hone, hone the, the supply chain, that's going to actually be, be perhaps bumpy. But that being said, I think there are going to be some structural beneficiaries of this adjustment process. I, I can imagine India and, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, especially look at places like Indonesia, right, uh, to actually structurally benefit from this process as well as potentially, you know, uh, countries near the U.S. Uh, for some sort of, you know, French shoring, onshore, or reshoring in Mexico. So, um, yeah. 
And as a matter of fact, if we look at uh, Indian and Indonesian indices, and especially some of in their sensitive cyclical sectors, uh, you know, uh, assets have moved, financial assets have moved exactly in that direction. Yeah, I think that's one of the investment themes that we're hearing a lot of people talk about. Even just yesterday, I was talking with a macro firm talking about that exact theme. Uh, so I, I, you could see that as being one one thing people are looking for for exposure to. You your your PhD focused a bit on bond yields, um, and 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 that's one of the key stories this year. Uh, you, you had a you had some uh, information on sort of stocks versus bonds. You know, bonds have historically been a risk off hedge for stocks not in 2022 uh in 2023 you know part of it was that yields were insanely low on the tips yields you know the professor talked about the 1.4 um you know start off the year negative into the tips yield real yield being negative one percent you're giving the government hundred dollars to get ninety dollars back after inflation was it was kind of crazy and and so we've had a massive repricing in the bond market um what is your thoughts? Do you think uh, bond yields will return to their hedge? What's, what factors these stock bond correlations across time? What's your uh, research say? Yeah, so my, my research actually was uh, done in 2018, and I was studying uh, basically the effects of uh, the Fed's unwinding of its balance sheet you know, on bond yields through uh, term premium, right? Essentially excess compensation of long bonds over short bonds. Um, and uh, as we know that 2018, the Fed was thinking about uh, unwinding its balance sheet and, and there was a lot of talk about it and ended up not happening because uh, I think uh, Chair Powell decided that uh, you know, the economy needed no support. And in fact, we, we returned to QE. But my research at the time was actually looking at a longer horizon since and the, after World War II. I want to understand a bit, a bit how you know, net issuance of treasuries, you know, uh, offloading supply onto the hands of private sector, right, making them hold this asset was actually, how it actually impacted, you know, bond yields uh, and bond prices. And what I saw is kind of interesting is that uh, we've been used to over the last 20 years, this idea that stock and bonds are negatively correlated, you know, uh, returns. And uh, that has actually given to a lot of, you know, strategies such as risk parity and so on that, taking advantage of that you know cor- negative correlation uh, but actually if you look at the longer horizon since let's say the 60s uh, you know until the 2000 between the 60s and the year 2000 if you let's say calculated a rolling sort of uh, return correlation trailing two years let's say of uh, uh, stocks and bonds you will find that they've mostly been positive right and then it flipped to be very negative around the year 2000 was almost like a structural break and yes stayed negative and reaching the lowest point just after after the financial crisis so there actually really was these two regimes um and these two regimes are more or less ca- you know reflecting you know this idea that uh, there is two forces right in when pricing assets of a nominal asset one is inflation one is real cash flow right a stock, of course, is a claim on business cash flows. But when inflation dominates cash flow, inflation enters through the discount rate, right? On the denominator, it's going to drive stock and bonds up and down together. But when inflation is very muted in a regime of generally disinflationary regime, when nobody's worried about inflation, then you're going to have this negative correlation. And my research found that basically, if you are in a previous, in an inflation-dominated regime, where stock and bonds are positively correlated, then bonds will have to pay a higher uh, anti-sort of risk-adjusted you know compensation to, to persuade investors to hold on to this asset that will actually add right to the overall riskiness of their stock bond uh, multi-asset portfolio. This is the big question. This is like the the sixty-four trillion dollar question for next year. Uh, you know, there's obviously the sixty forty. Is is will the bonds um, be the risk off hedge? Is there a disinflation like the professor is talking about, or or even actually one of the things he and I have been talking about recently is will this short term pain for the bond market stick in investors' minds and actually because it didn't hedge, you know, people might have to pay a little bit more for bonds in the short run because, you know, that their sort of hedging characteristic disappeared for some time. Uh, what, what's your, you want to rebut the professor's view that we're going to go down 100 basis points in yields next year? 
I think in the short run that could very well happen. I think one thing about inflationary regime people sometimes misunderstand is that inflationary regime just doesn't just mean 8% year-on-year inflation month after month, right? What inflationary regime really means is you're going to get very volatile inflation where inflation goes up very very high and then comes back down and then resurges the moment let's say you enter a recession inflation comes down in level and then you, re you recover out of a recession and all those supply constraints are actually there haven't really been built up and you get inflation again uh, and you have those basically all these tight and balanced delicately balanced markets and in terms of bond yields what 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 my research is really is hinting at is the idea that if we were to actually get right a regime shift where we flip to a, 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 an environment where inflation is volatile but generally staying stabilizing at a higher level and interest rates will have to then bake in that uncertainty premium uh, you know debt issuance is going to be costlier per unit of issuance in terms of ex ante risk com compensation right so that's going to have implications if we're looking at a government debt to GDP ratio that's sitting at historic highs as far as the Fed's balance sheet that's also sitting at a historic high as a share of GDP. In fact, major central banks across the globe have this problem. So uh, I think that should have implications over not just the next 12 months, but uh, in the next five to seven years to come. Uh, whenever people start talking about debt to GDP, we often point out Japan, which has the highest debt to GDP, but the lowest interest rates around the world. They did try to make some adjustments to their interest rates this week. They did uh, increase the cap from 25 to 50. So that was one of the things that got, caused global yields to rise this week it was a very interesting dynamic. And, and Japan is at the outlier on, on some of these things that I think the rest of the world will experience over time. It's going to be a fascinating case study of, of how this all plays out globally. Indeed. To, and, and in fact, I think uh, most of the Western economies for all these years, when, when they've, we've been running up, you know, debt, uh, we've been pointing to Japan, right, as being the case where, like, see, look at Japan, no inflation, everything seems fine. But one worries whether or not what happened in Japan was not so much a, you know, the rule by the exception that they were, what happened there was because what happened out, what didn't happen everywhere else, right? That they were able to, I think, you know, take advantage of the massive disinflation, you know, out of China and joining WTO, you know, and all these sort of favorable large supply shocks, you know, that they experienced over the last uh, uh, two, three decades that quickly now going away and Japan just printed the highest inflation core inflation in four decades so you know that I think more than anything perhaps could signal to us that we are looking at a new era yeah they're at the forefront of the aging of the demographic issue of sort of at the at the short end being very tight labor markets being very strong wage gains at the at the young end of the population but managing it because people are rolling off the higher paid people. Uh, sort of very interesting dynamic. We have Steve Howe with us for the hour. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets. We talked a lot about structural versus transitory uh, inflation on in the first half. I want to get into the implications now, Steve, on let's start with equities. Uh, and sort of one of the big views you heard the professor say, don't compare my equity yields to nominal bond yield stocks are real assets. You got to compare it to the real bond yield. Uh, he gave us a lead into that. Um, but, but let's talk through the sort of short-term impacts, long-term impacts. He's talking about real long-run inflation hedge versus the short run, which anything, you know, from a tightening Fed, you could see obviously pressure in the short run like you saw this year. Uh, but mm -hmm. talk through what do you think the, the your, your take on that and, and how you see it play out across equities? Yeah, so my presentation basically is a survey of, uh, you know, different asset classes and you know, equities. I looked at sector equities as well as um, long short style factors. Uh, and what I'm trying to get at is basically how you know, different equity sectors, right, in a long-only context, for example, or even relative to the market, how it's actually performed across different inflationary regimes where I divide up the performance by uh, quantiles or deciles of realized inflation ver uh, against uh, contemporaneous real returns. And, uh, you know, different sectors perform basically across inflationary uh, uh, you know, regimes or, or, or I guess environments in ways that you sort of expect, right? You know, you have the energy sector that 
pretty much goes up in a straight line and uh, you know one for one with inflation because after all energy the product is an input right into cpi uh but so the trade-off there of course is that so you're hedging against inflation when inflation is going up right but then you know the moment inflation you know sort of uh, goes down because we're in a uh, recession you, uh, such an inflation hedge tends to crash I, I think that's sort of the trade-off right and back to what we were talking about before the break is that you know inflation regime one painful thing is that you're going to have very fast cyclical changes going from you know inflationary growth to stagflation to recession and then perhaps rebound recovery going to inflationary growth again or stagflation so that's why some of the other uh, uh, sectors are going to be interesting you know you look at um, in, in my presentation like look at healthcare look at uh, utilities look at consumer staples where they give you a profile that's less aggressively going up in an inflationary environment but also it, it holds up well in a, uh, a recession or you know stagflation environment in 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 your estimation, do you think those other sectors, they're classic defensive sectors, like energy is a classical, classic cyclical, you think about growth driving energy, demand leading to better rising prices, healthcare staples, utilities, that's your classic risk off sectors where you hide out. And what's interesting is those four were your top performing sectors this year, uh, basically, mm -hmm. almost like one for one, uh, energy being off the charts, uh, but then the other four actually, you know, probably declining the least or, or, or sort of small gains. What, it, it's been a classic uh, thing. Is it, be, is it just the defensiveness that makes the others work well, or do you think it's the pricing power? What's the combination that you think uh, showed that relative performance? Uh, yeah, I think it's, a, it's, it's a, indeed a combination of, uh, you know, uh, the, the obviously, you know, energy having a direct beta onto inflation that helped you, you know, in the first two, three quarters of the last two years, right, starting September uh, 2020, when inflation started, you know, revving up. Um, and then inflation sort of started, you know, energy started going sideways as we enter into a sort of an environment where, you know, it, it, growth is slowing. And then you see the strength of these other defensive sectors. And it is, I think, as you say, a matter of pricing power, right? These other sectors tend to have very stable margins. They're able to pass on the cost, you know, and they are usually priced at reasonable levels. So, you know, the fact that the, it turns out what's interesting is that the level of the margin is not as important as the stability of margins, you know, because a generally less profitable, less low, high margin sector is already priced in. But if, you, if you're able to maintain that margin, then you're going to be rewarded in the environment where everyone is seeking refuge. So now, some of the factor research on uh, a lot of people talk about value, growth, momentum, and other factors. You also did some work on the value factor. I, I, for for people who are follow both Steve and I on Twitter, I actually did a, a long thread. Uh, also on 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 the end of year rebalance season, it was actually a very popular thread uh, that talked about the shift occurring in the S and P family of indexes. Um, they have this sort of interesting combination of factors that go to determining value and growth and very interestingly i think energy is the cheapest sector on on any metric today and they just reduced energy um significantly seven or eight percent in value put into the growth index largely because of the momentum factor because uh, they use that as part of their growth de definition it's a very interesting trade and they went into all these other defensive sectors in growth and away from value in staples and healthcare, even utilities in some of these which are definitely not a growth sector it's because of that momentum impact so it's a very interesting thread across all size segments you can check that out on my twitter handle but steve talk, let talk, i, I want to get into some of these new factors um, you, you talk a little bit about value and momentum being good factors uh, and, and inflation hedge, um, and certainly value worked this year uh, strongly. Talk about things like a pricing power factor. You, you're, you're, you're doing some work on pricing power as a factor. Talk about the general umbrella of that type of index factors, and, and maybe if you want to highlight that one as a unique one right now. Yeah, so pricing power is one idea that uh, we've been working on uh, over at Bloomberg Indices. And, uh, you know, so everyone's been talking about pricing power. You know, that seems like a natural concept in an inflationary regime. You want to find companies that can pass on costs, right, That whose you know, margin won't be compressed uh, and, and therefore can be expected to outperform. And it turns out the first order intuition that people have about pricing power is usually you want to find companies with high margins, right? But it turns out companies with just high margins are not necessarily going to perform well. Uh, uh, you know, if you look at what has happened over the last two years, uh, what, because 
companies with high margins often see their margins eroded into either they don't have the ability to pass on costs or sometimes they intentionally let margin be eroded uh, to maintain market share. Uh, I think Elon, in fact, mentioned on the spaces last night, citing the fact that they have high margins relative to other automakers and they will actually, in fact, let margin erode a bit to maintain market share. And what we found in our research, it turns out, is actually the stability of uh, mar margins that actually, you know, identifies pricing power most accurately. And that's indeed what we are showing with this pricing power index that uh, we've created that's also on the back of my deck. And uh, you will see that, uh, you know, this factor uh, has, a, I think, a bit of orthogonal, uh, um, you know, exposure to typ your typical quality factor, which includes, you know, profitability is one of the uh, determinants, you know, um, because it's the ability of margin. So you have some fl flavor of minvol, right? you're minimizing fundamental volatility. Uh, but uh, over the long run, it, it is pretty remarkable how he has actually outperformed the underlying index that you are, you know, rewarded for not taking judicial risks. Yeah. Well, when we said Steve is working on quantitative research at Bloomberg Indices, this is the kind of interesting factor research that he is doing. Uh, Steve, that was a pretty interesting index. Is there any other of these sort of innovative factors you want to highlight quickly um, before we go away from equities? Yeah, so there's another idea that uh, we've actually worked on this year is actually on uh, looking at low equity duration. Uh, duration, as some people have know, that is a concept that's well known in, in bonds, right? It's basically a cash flow weighted time to maturity. It gives you a sense how quickly you get back your principal. If cash flow or coupons of a bond is you know very high, you get back your principal very quickly. That's a short duration bond, and duration approximately measures the, the uh, the value of a bond sensitivity to short-term interest rate movements. So, and the idea is that then if you have short, shorter duration, you know, then, then you're less susceptible to inflation shocks and rate, rate hikes. We are wanted to borrow that analogy and implement it in stocks. It turns out you actually can measure an implied equity duration by uh, forecasting, you know, uh, equity or cash flow and do a similar sort of exercise of calculating almost like a Macaulay uh, a measure of implied equity duration and form a factor using that as a signal. And we've uh, created an index on the low duration equity index and essentially performed, you know, quite remarkably well, you know, and it's sort of a different way because it gives you a different way to bet on a value, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly this year was a classic year, and that index, I'm sure, did mm -hmm. incredibly well this year. I'd be, I'd be curious to look through the differences. You know, we, we have some high dividend index families, which are very much the same concept if you're getting high cash flows uh, today. Um, I'm sure that has a much lower duration. You see that was through November, was up over double digits when the SP was down double digits. You know, so you definitely see that as the key factor this year. be interesting to drill into how you're doing that. We're talking with Steve Howe, who's quant researcher, a quantitative researcher on the Bloomberg Index team. Uh, and you can see he's doing some interesting work on new styles, new factors uh, as part of his work on inflation. Um, so, Steve, we've talked through equities. We've talked a little bit about bonds. Let's go to commodities. I, I'd say commodities were an unloved asset class. They were sort of terrible for a decade. And you say, hey, inflation was turning down. We didn't need it. You maybe, you know, maybe you're in this new regime where commodities have a new diversifying role. Certainly, they were one of the few things that were up uh, in 2022. Um, and, and I've been talking about, hey, divert. a lot of people do gold. Uh, and, and if I see like just the flows to products, and we have certainly have a product line in Europe with that shows this, you know, very heavy gold allocations, but not a lot of diversified commodities. Maybe talk through um, your view on that gold versus diversified commodities, uh, how you see gold this year, how you see gold playing out in the future. Uh, and, and any other comments you want to make on, on the commodities role as an inflation hedge? Yeah, indeed. Uh, so commodities, obviously, is the classic inflation hedge, right? And uh, the reason people, I think, have feel ambivalent about it is because over the last two decades, it was actually the, you know, sort of typical period, especially in the disinflationary period where you are underperform. But more generally, over the longer horizon, this is, you know, a boom bust, you know, sector is highly cyclical. I think, I think natural gas is well known to be a widow maker. Uh, so, you know, you, it's very much tactical and, uh, you know, you benefit in this inflation, but 
the moment economy crashes, the commodities will also likely crash, right? Every single recession, inflation has actually come down. Gold, out of all the different commodities, you know, has this interesting characteristic. If you look at, for example, how gold has performed over the last, you know, uh, uh, two years, when you would have expected, you know, to, to actually rise in the inflation environment, thinking that is an inflation hedge, uh, it hasn't. And people think that was somehow odd, but actually it's not so much an aberration if you look at historical data going all the way back to, you know, you know, I guess since end of World War II to the present day, you just look at how he has performed across inflationary deciles or quantiles. It does, it has this sort of smile shape, right? Golden smile, I think Bob Elliott, uh, who's also on Twitter, you know, called it. Uh, it hedges against deflation, the hyperinflation, it sort of hedges against disasters, right? Um, and you can more or less think of it as, you know, being sensitive to real interest rates. When real interest rates, you know, really plummets, right? This is an asset that doesn't yield anything that's going to actually sort of do well in all both deep deep recession and hyperinflation. And then in the middle, it's just sort of doing a bunch of nothing. Uh, and that's exactly what I kind of what we saw. Um, so gold um, is, is less of a hedge against your sort of run of the mill, like, you know, mod moderate re recession, more uh, a hedge against extreme tail events. It, it, and so, as you think through next year, um, is is uh, do you have a view on on how gold performs as as you look ahead? Yeah, it seems like uh, you know gold is actually recently getting a bit of a pickup because I think anytime we we've been worried about uh, recession next year, right? Anytime I think the recession fears pick picks up, you see gold pick up a bit. So you know I think if we did were to were to really were to experience a deep recession next year, I think gold right historically would be, would have been expected to outperform. Are, are there any other commodities um, or, or things as you, as you think about sort of thinking about where you would allocate to commodities that you would, from some of your research, point out that you think people mm -hmm. should be factored? If it, if it was an unloved asset class because inflation was trending down, how do you think people should think about the, the full asset class today? Yeah, so actually, you know, in one of the pages towards the end of my deck, I, sh I, did, I sh plot this, uh, you know, frontier, uh, you know, trading off inflation beta or inflation sensitivity against uh, risk adjusted return or sharp ratio over the long run, right? And you see that, uh, you know, commodities tend to occupy the space to the northwest, right, the up to, uh, upper left side. Uh, they tend to have very high inflation sensitivity, but the trade-off is that they tend to have very low sharp ratio. They tend to have boom and bust. So they belong in, in, in I think, an multi-asset portfolio, especially if you believe that we're going to enter into a more inflationary, structurally inflationary regime in the coming years. Uh, that they should be, uh, the idea is that you want to balance it against the rest of a portfolio so that, uh, you know, gives you that inflation sensitivity, but uh, it does not dominate overall, right, you know, uh, a risk, you know, characteristic of your portfolio. Well, or at least it's a hedge against, hey, you, you know, mm -hmm. you see stocks and bonds both benefit in in the def declining inflation, um, at mm -hmm. least, um they had for a long time. Now this year showed, hey, the, the key risk to both stocks and bonds could be this elevated inflation. So you yes. might want, even though the sharp is low, you might want to add more of it structurally because that is remains a key risk potentially. Yeah, it is it's sharp is slow across a very, very long time across multiple regimes, right? So if you have a view on the type of economic regime that we're about to enter versus what we just experienced over the last 10 years, right? Uh, I think that should probably, you know, point towards, you know, uh, uh, there, be, there being more of a role for commodities in the overall portfolio. Um, so in terms of any other things that, as, as you think about the, 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 what's on your research agenda, when you think about factors, things that you're looking at, what's, what's dominating your, your research list right now? Yeah, so uh, I've actually become more interested in trend following recently. Uh, I think uh, you know, trend following has been, I think, a, a classic global macro type of like you know strategy. I think global macro should. I, I expect it to have actually a fantastic decade. Yeah, I think should, this is, we're going to look go, going to a golden era for global macro. Right? The last decade, you know, I think you often hear about stories of global macro uh, funds struggling because they're not being 
kind of a clear trend. And, uh, you know, I, I remember talking to former colleagues who worked on managed futures who tell me that uh, we, don't, we need bigger waves, we need bigger waves. And I think finally the bigger waves are here and they seem to be here to stay because of all the geopolitical risks and, and other uncertainties. And um, if we look at my presentation, one in one, one on one page, I, I sort of briefly alluded to the idea that trend following tends to ha show up with this smile shape, you know, a real return profile across inflation uh, realizations, similar to gold, but even more dramatically so that it protects you against sort of uh, disasters and fast and, and trend changes. Uh, and I think it's, it's a very interesting concept that I think perhaps received less attention over the last few years. And then now he's perhaps on the cusp of, of, of coming back and could actually, you know, deserve a more understanding. Very much like commodities were out of favor for like a decade, um, mm -hmm. you know, managed futures and I guess managed future global macro were were together out of favor. Um, and so I, I and, and certainly they've had a blockbuster year this year. Uh, your old firm has done incredibly well in some of those spaces. Um when you think about global macros, is there anything besides for sort of trend signals or managed future signals that you think fits into that global macro bucket that people should be thinking about? Yeah, I think um, just, I think just gen generally the whole suite of different sort of uh, you know uh, global macro systematic you know uh, uh, factors you know I think are going to get some in interesting. Uh, uh, I think dy dynamic, like you know, your your, your typical your, your carry, you, you know, uh, but uh, I think also um, just the, abil the ability, to, you know, to actually you know look at regime shifts and uh, allocate tactically, you know, uh, towards that. I think that is perhaps what's going to uh, be quite uh, helpful, uh, you know, if we actually were to enter a very volatile regime. Well, we've had a, a sort of very wide-ranging discussion across Steve's work on inflation and, and what assets do well. We both we mentioned a few times that he and I are both on Twitter. Steve, you did a Twitter poll last night. Maybe it's our final closing question and comment. You you, you asked. We 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 know there's this sort of new owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, uh, and his his car company Tesla has come under a lot of pressure uh, this year in their classic maybe high duration growth stock, more expensive growth stock. And, and, and you sure did the question Exxon versus Tesla. You want to reveal the the results of this poll? If you, and your, your question was over the next 10 years, what's going to be the higher market cap stock? What, what was the results of this poll? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, so Tesla's market cap just dipped below Exxon's. So I asked people who, which company they expect to have a higher market cap over the next 10 years. And it seems like uh, after a thousand plus votes, uh, we have settled at about 55% think Exxon will be bigger than uh, Tesla, uh, which is, uh, I think, perhaps shocking to some people if you had asked them, you know, uh, a year ago or a year or two ago, uh, that you've got this, you know, secularly ascendant uh, sector, you know, EVs are supposed to take over the entire, you know, auto industry versus a, uh, what seems like a... We're going to have to wrap, Steve. I, I think yeah. people should come to Twitter to see that discussion. I'm going to do a little bit on that post a little bit later. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We had Steve Howe from Bloomberg. Happy holidays, Chris, in the soundboard, Matter producer. See you in the new year. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 